I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fourth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the rise of pseudoscience, the ethics of spying, the future of liberalism, the trustworthiness of science, the meaning of the soul, the origins of religion, and the reason why we're in this whole global mess in the first place. Prophecy is, as they say, a mug's game. Forecasting the future might be fun, but it's not necessarily a science, and you're much more likely to be remembered for what you got wrong than for what you got right. And yet, we can't avoid doing it. We are uniquely capable, among species on Earth, of peering into the mists of the future. We're uniquely capable of grasping ideas of causality and probability, And we live in uniquely large and complex societies that turn these capabilities into necessities. And so we look forward and try to discern what lies ahead. Hamish McRae is an economic journalist who was editor of Euromoney and financial editor of The Guardian before moving to The Independent. He's one of Europe's leading thinkers on global trends. And his new book, The World in 2050, peers into the darkness of the next 30 years to see what's heading our way. Hamish, welcome to Reading Our Times. Well, thank you very much for letting me join you. Now, this isn't your first book on the future. You published a book in 1996 entitled The World in 2020. So can you tell me what you learned from that particular experience, and in particular, what you got right and what you got wrong a quarter of a century ago? Gosh, well... I suppose the short answer is I had three bullseyes or near bullseyes and a couple of misses, one of which grieves me a great deal. The bullseyes were fairly straightforward. I got Brexit right, or at least I warned that it was quite likely. I could also see a populist revolution in America. And that must have been evidence in the early 90s that there would be some kind of populist revolution, including against the the liberal elite. And the third thing that I at least showed awareness of was the dangers of a pandemic. I had half a page or so that we might get something like AIDS, only much worse or more easily caught, couldn't be much worse, much more easily transmitted. Things I got wrong, I think I underestimated the way in which Europe would do fairly well at holding itself together. I thought it might start to fly apart uh, or at least move into a core on the periphery earlier. I think it will do now, but, but I think I was wrong in my timing. And I think with China, I rather felt that it would not be economically successful unless it became politically more liberal which I guess, again, may be wrong as to timing. But the thing that grieves me most was that I managed to write a book in 1994, what he's published then, that didn't mention the word internet. I could see it would be connected computers, but I didn't know enough to know that Mm. the internet would be the mechanism for connecting them. So a couple of misses and one which really grieves me. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty good hit rate, I'd say. I think you should pat yourself on the back for that. Tell me, what did you learn from that experience? Because I think one of the Hmm. benefits of this whole 
process of looking forward a generation or so is not always simply on what you got right and what mm. you got wrong, but the process involved in thinking things through. So what did you learn from that original process about how to think about the future? Oh, well, I think that the key thing, I, I hope I can do it better now, in that I'm better at bolting down what we can say with a reasonable degree of certainty. And that are things like demography. We, you know, we know pretty much how many people there will be in the world in 30 years' time. You can't be 30 in 30 years' time unless you've been born already. So that, that gives you a bit yes, of a start. Yes. And I think that I also hope I've learnt from my points about technology that there will be some areas of technology which will burst out, which probably exists now in a lab or at least in the mind of some 18-year-old uh, in California, that, that actually will burst out and change the way we do everything in 20 yes. years' time. Yes. Well, let's try and bring some focus to our discussion about the next 30 years or so in the attempt to try and bring out order to this difficult task of forecasting, you split out five major areas or trends. And I want, if possible, to touch on each of these mm. before we draw them all together again in our discussion of the world in 2050. And the first you've already mentioned is demography. Now, as you say, this is in some ways the easiest to predict, isn't it? So give us an overview of the, the demographic mm. trends in the next 30 years or so. Well, the old world, the developed world becomes older. Uh, it becomes older at different rates, with countries like Japan and much of Europe becoming old pretty fast. Parts of the developed world grow old more slowly. I, I mean, in terms of the structure of the population, obviously, we're all getting older. And that includes America, the United States uh, and Canada. So the old world grows older, but at different rates. China grows much older and will have a sharply falling population by 2050, the lagged results of the one-child policy now being reversed, but actually not very successfully in the sense that a lot of Chinese people choose to have smaller families now and they're way below mm. replacement rate. The areas that where population will grow include India. India becomes the most populous country in the world and the Middle East and Africa. And Africa, instead of, and from memory, accounting at the moment for something like the low teens in terms of world population proportionately, it will be something like a quarter of the world's population. Median age in Nigeria, something like 18. So you have a young mm. world in Africa and the Middle East. You have an old world in much of the, of the rest of the uh, the normal hemisphere, and a sort of mediumly old world in India. And that feeds into another significant demographic, but also political trend, which is migration, mm. isn't it? So how do you see migration patterns shifting and changing the demographic landscape in the next generation? Well, there, there will be things that we can't predict. Back in the early 90s, we couldn't see the way in which Eastern Europeans, particularly Romania, Bulgaria, the Baltic states, would actually lose population and they would come to Western Europe. And that's been one of the remarkable features. I think the country with the 
fastest falling population or the greatest percentage fall has been Bulgaria. It's a lovely, lovely place. I've been there. Mm. But people have moved, moved away, including to the UK. So I think there will be, within the developed world, there will be movement. I think one of the big patterns will be that the US will remain a magnet for people, a magnet for talent, if you will, which is one of the bull points about North America. I don't think people will migrate into China much or into Russia very much, which means that they will have issues there. And of course, and this is not particularly clever to say it, I think there will be great pressure from Africans to want to move mm. to the developed world, particularly to Europe. Mm. All your major trends are very closely interlinked with one another and demography is obviously very closely linked with environmental trends. Mm. World population of what are we talking about? Is it about 10 billion yeah, by that stage? It'll be say? somewhere between nine and 10. I mean, the UN figures, I think, are nine and a half or some, but they change every year uh, or every two years when they do their work. The UN, by the way, is extremely good at its population mm. uh, work. It's, I looked back at what I'd written based on the UN work 25 years ago, and they were with about 100,000 of the numbers now. So, you know, they're, they're good. impressive. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of environmental impact of these nine and a half or so billion people, what's the impact on food? What's the impact on water? Mm. What's the impact on energy? We had 25 years ago a number of concerns. Would there be enough oil to, uh, to drive the world economy? People were talking about peak oil. They were worrying about food. Uh, and they're certainly worrying about water. I think those worries, the balance has shifted now. Instead of there being lots of worries, there is now one huge, humongous, dominating worry, which is climate change. And I think that we probably will be able to scramble through on food. I think we'll probably be able to scramble through on water by using it more carefully. But I think that the climate change issue is something that is difficult. Mm. Let me step back. It may be that the incremental measures we are taking now will be sufficient to slow global warming to a level where it can be managed. It may not be so. And if it is not so, we will panic. And what worries me is that if we do need to panic, we'll panic too late because it's much, yes. much better to panic early if you can. Yes. I do have some faith in technology to come up with fixes. And if we look now at the whole global road fleet being switched to mm. electric cars and the whole energy generation being switched to sustainable energy. That's happening at a speed that was quite unpredicted even five years ago. So I think mm. that technology will help radically. But of course, I'm worried. There is a very interesting trend, isn't there, when it comes to peak oil. You remark at one point in your book, a generation ago, people talked about peak oil in terms of there's no more oil out there and we have reached the maximum levels of our output. Nowadays, people talk about peak oil in terms of we're not going to use anymore because we're shifting to other forms of, of energy. So are you predicting the true end of the age of oil? 
Oh, I think oil will be around in 2050 and fossil fuels will still be supplying whatever it is, half of primary energy. So, I mean, these things do take time. Uh, remember, we're still using quite a lot of coal. And mm. Winston Churchill switched the Royal Navy from coal burning to oil burning in what, 1910, was it? Before the First World yes, War, anyway. So, I mean, these things yes. hang around. But I think that... One of the really encouraging things is the way in which renewables now are just becoming so much cheaper. And we will probably have some big breakthrough, which we can't at the moment see quite what the technology will be, but some big breakthrough in storage of electricity. And that really will change mm. everything in radical ways. And we can also do an awful lot with conservation. There is another wild card when it comes to energy pertaining to rare earth metals, isn't there? So if we're going to be relying far more on energy storage, that's not in itself an element-free option. It requires quite a lot of elements and quite a few of them are quite rare. And quite a few of those are in regimes that, shall we say, are not necessarily liberal democracies. People have often said that one of the challenges of the last part of the 20th century is so much of the West was dependent on oil, which was located in the Middle East. And that made enormous geopolitical ramifications. Do you see a kind of a switch from that to a similar situation, but with regards competition over rare earth metals? Well, you make a very good point. You're absolutely right. It's one of the worries that I, I, I articulate. I suppose on a 30-year view, we may well find technologies that don't need so much of these rare earths. Uh, but certainly it's a profound concern now. I think that you keep on hearing of a new battery technology that doesn't need lithium or whatever. It's not as good yet. But if there is huge demand for a rare earth that cannot be supplied, then we will figure out some other way of doing it. And the question is, can we then scale that up and how quickly can we do it? So I think it will be a profound concern, but not an absolute killer of the move to cleaner technologies. Let's move on to the third area, which is trade and finance. Now, obviously, in the mid-1990s, the world was flattening, yeah. to paraphrase Thomas Friedman, yeah. and, and globalisation was sweeping all before it, and it would do for another 15, 20 years or so, but the 2010s have seen a change in this. Now, as I read it in your book, you see the recent shift away from globalisation as more of a blip more of a bump in the road than a roadblock. Is that fair? I think it will change its nature. Um, I think there are some things which will absolutely stay. And I suppose I have to acknowledge that what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in the relationship with China may mean that I'm wrong. And that's, by the way, I ought to say, one of the things, if you write about the future, you know you will be wrong. Uh, your job is not to be right. It is to give people a framework so that if something changes that isn't foreseen, then they can say, OK, that's fine. That means we need to adjust our own ideas. So yes. I, I want people to see me as a guide, not of a very unautocratic nature. You know, we're going to have fun <laughs> on this journey. Yes. So, yes. I mean, yeah, sure. I think globalisation changes its nature and we will not move goods around so much. We will 
build more locally. But I think the idea of moving ideas around, how you make those goods, will be just as free as ever and probably even increase. So technology mm. will move across boundaries with the speed of light. Money will continue to move across boundaries with the speed of light. And I think that will therefore mean that globalization continues but changes its nature. That's a very interesting point. But you also make the point, don't you, in the book about a shift in the global economy towards a more service-based economy from a goods-based economy. Goods are relatively easy to make on the other side of the world and to transport. Ideas, as you say, can travel around the world at the speed of light. Services are harder to globalise, aren't they? And that yes. might change the overall trade landscape. Thank you for bringing that up. Services are fascinating. They're different to goods because if you buy a BMW here or, or in China, where a lot of them are now made, it's more or less the same product uh, and you use it in the same way. If you buy a pension plan, it's totally different here from a pension plan in India or a pension plan in mm. uh, Venezuela or wherever. And so services cannot easily be transported. I do know someone, a friend of mine, who used to go to, woman journalist, a very fine one, who used to go to New York once a month to have her hair cut. But you can't really, <laughs> you can't really uh, do, move services across national boundaries, across big distances uh, in the same way they do. But I yep. think, therefore, that the ideas of how you create a service will, however, shift. And I think it's fascinating if you look at the service of Facebook or the service of Squadcast, the, uh, the technology we're using now. That is a service which has moved across national boundaries. And so I think there yes. will be some aspects of services which will move more, and that will change the nature of globalization. We will go on learning from each other but in a somewhat different way. I must ask about money. <laughs> I should point out to listeners, we're having this conversation a week or so after what was a pretty massive cryptocurrency crash. And you say at one point in the book, cryptocurrencies are a blind alley. Ah, that's a bit of a relief. I couldn't quite remember what I said. I think I, <laughs> I absolutely do. And it was, in a sense if I may say so, a bit braver to be writing that before the present crash, indeed before the present mm. retreat from uh, these very high valuations on high-tech shares, which is uh, happening at the moment. Mm. I go back here to my basic economics that I was taught all those years ago in Dublin, which is that there are certain things currencies do uh, they're a store of value, medium exchange, unit of account. And mm. the cryptos don't do very well on any of those counts. That doesn't mean they can't be a useful asset class. If people want to have a crypto or a non-fungible token or whatever, that's fine. But don't call that a currency uh, because yes. it's not. At the same time, would you say that cash is on its way out? It certainly feels like it has been the last 18 months or oh, so. I think physical cash is, but... I think fiat currencies, for all their faults, uh, and heavens mm. knows we can see their faults now in terms of inflation at high single figures, probably mm. going to low double figures. I think fiat currencies will probably survive for another generation. And that means the ongoing supremacy of the US dollar? I think the dollar goes on being the place to be. It'll always be accepted. It'll always be the default currency of the world. The US becomes 
the second largest economy having been passed by China, sometime in the 2030s, probably. But I think I'm pretty bullish about America's ability to reinvent itself. And if it can keep on reinventing itself and finding goods and services the world wants to buy, then, and, and by the way, and keeps attracting clever people, then I think the dollar will remain the currency of choice and the most useful one for international transactions. Let's talk about technology. It is interesting, isn't it? When you read fictionalised accounts about the future, technology is forefront. You have flying cars and the panoply other fantastic objects. You make the point that technology is, in one sense, the hardest to predict and possibly even the easiest to get wrong, yeah. therefore. But you make the very important point earlier on. There are two anchors yeah. in our discussion about the future of technology, the laws of physics and if you like, the laws of human desire. Yes. Tell us what you mean by that and how that impacts your thinking about the next generation of technology. Well, the laws of physics, unless something happens which is at the outer limits of the possible and we discover there is a different physics, it's not impossible, but I think I show awareness of it, but I think it is most unlikely. The laws of physics really do limit the speed of air transport, practical speed of air transport to what it is now. It hasn't changed in 40 years. The first time I flew to America in the early 60s was on a, a 707, took exactly the same time as now mm. in very similar circumstances. Real cost, however, was rather higher. So uh, I think that sort of thing doesn't change. What will change is the competence and ways in which we use electronic technologies. And there we really head into the areas that, that are very unpredictable. It's quite hard to think now that it's only 15 years since the iPhone was launched by Steve Jobs, mm. when he held mm. it up at that meeting and said, sometimes something comes along which changes everything. And that changed mm. everything. But even he, in his utter genius for predicting what people wanted, even he couldn't spot that people would take selfies because the first iPhone didn't have a front-facing camera. And that comes on to the second point which you mentioned, which is what do we really want from technology? And that, I think, goes back to basic human desires. I'm always reminded in these particular conversations of an issue of new scientists, dating from the 1960s or so, in which they asked scientists mm. to predict the future. And many of them did predict something that was not dissimilar to the internet in terms mm. of electronic connectivity. Very impressive. 30 years in advance, mm. but they went on to say this would make enormously significant changes in the area of agronomy and jurisprudence. Mm. And the government reporting which I was reading this made the point that it's a classic mistake of scientists to get the scientific predictions right and then to assume that human nature would similarly change. So because we had the internet, people would be fascinated by agronomy and jurisprudence as opposed to shopping, communication and sex, yes. which is what the <laughs> internet is used for very, very heavily. Yes. This kind of stubborn human nature that wants the same thing today mm. is our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents is a real, as you say, anchor in this whole technological discussion, isn't it? Well, I find that an anchor. There are some people who believe our brains are being changed by this technology, but there I part with them. But if it's not changing our brains, there's an argument that it could change our bodies. And you make the point about healthcare mm. being possibly the new frontier in terms of the interaction between humans and technology. How do you think that's going to change in the next 30 years or so? Well, I think that 
There's several things which we're already seeing at the moment. Very simple things like a step counter. How many of us are making sure that we try and do 10,000 steps a day? Okay, well, 6,000 is enough. But, uh, <laughs> that's what, it's, a very, it's a very tiny thing, you know, but, but I think we, a lot of people are walking more. So I think that technology will do what we want it to do as long as we are sensitive enough and understanding enough of our own hopes and desires to use it in a positive way, which incidentally brings you mm. then on to another point, which is we have this divine technology, but we're struggling to have both the legal controls on how we use it and the etiquette, the etiquette of what we do mm. and what we don't do with that technology. Well, let's talk about governance because mm. you, you've mentioned it. A lot of fretting in the last five to 10 years or so about populism, mm. about the right of autocracies. You're a bit more sanguine about this. You say at one point that sort of the populist quote unquote kind of revolution will eventually peter out. Again, more of a bump in the road than a death sentence for liberal democracy. Is that right? I think we have to be worried about democracy. I don't think we're going through a particularly bad period. I think that the current dissent that's obvious in liberal democracies is pretty much par for the course. Uh, you look at the dissent that took place in, in America in the 1920s. You look at the mess that liberal democracies in Europe, including in Britain, made of the 1930s. Democracy, I think, was under just as much threat then. I don't buy the idea that populism in the Western world is somehow a threat to liberal democracies. I think it's part of liberal democracies that had become too elitist. The yes. grandees were running the show and making it jolly nice for themselves. A lot of people didn't find that mm. that worked too well for them. And so in a very disorganised way, they made their voices felt. And that's fine. That is the way it should be. It's the way the pendulum swings and it will swing back. Yeah, so but a necessary corrective. Necessarily corrective, exactly. But, but I mean, look, if you say, are you worried? Yes, that is one of my big worries that democracy will not hold together. And I think, of course, it, we should be worried about that. And it's a, it's a robust mm. plant, but even robust plants need to be tended. We're having this conversation probably, ooh, I guess it's three months now into mm. the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm. And I wonder whether there's an argument which says that paradoxically, the rise of autocracies like Russia can be good for democracies in that they make them realise what they are defending. And we've seen a, a level of agreement in and unanimity within NATO mm. and within the European Union and within the West generally in the last three months that was palpably not there throughout the 20, 2010s. Now, I'm not for a second suggesting that what's happened in Russia and Ukraine is a good thing, but I guess it could serve as a catalyst for the West to realise the value of liberal democracy, couldn't it? Oh, I think absolutely. Uh, I should say that the invasion took place about four days before we had to push the button on the final run of proofs. And I had one of the most disagreeable four days of my life thinking, wait a minute, I need to look at everything. And, and how do I patch this? Because as you know, in a book, 
in the final, at that stage, if you take out 35 words, you've got to put in 35 words. Yes. And I fortunately had a piece at the back. Uh, one of my, the third of my biggest fears was that Russia would go, uh, would go into some kind of madness that would harm both itself mm. and its neighbours. And so I was able to insert the words in there. It, it may be Ukraine is the, exactly what I most feared. No, I mean, I think that is a very good example of the way that when the West all its self-indulgent and incoherence and disorganization, when it's suddenly really, really threatened, it pulls together in an extraordinary way. And I could give you another example of that, which is the pandemic. Mm. The West was criticized for not having the organized authoritarian response of, of China to that. But look, it, it developed the vaccines that actually worked. It pulled together government, universities, and the big pharma companies. It managed to get those vaccines out with astounding speed. I think it showed that the mixed economies really worked remarkably well, and they pulled together very well on a global basis. And it's also worth remarking, again, as we're having this conversation, we are living in a society that's broadly speaking back to normal, whereas there are still tens of millions of people locked down in Chinese cities, aren't there? Well, absolutely. And I think, actually, that has not happened when I cleared the book, uh, and I probably was maybe a little too pessimistic about, about democracy vis-a-vis mm. -vis autocracy in the words I wrote then. Harold Macmillan is famous for his events, events dear, dear boy, boy yes. events, comments. And by definition, you can't predict events. You can't forecast those kind of events because they do come out of nowhere, really. But you do something close to that in, towards the end of the book when you talk about the possible challenges. You mentioned one of them there, Russia overplays its hand. The US political system fails to hold together or China, India and the US mismanage their relationship. Mm. No, you have a whole list of 10 there, and we don't have time to go mm. through all of them. Do you want to just pick out one that you think is, if you like, a challenge that we should be most alert to? Gosh, this is a book which is fundamentally optimistic about the future of the world. But I felt I wasn't being honest with the reader if I didn't uncover my darkest fear. And I think that the absolute dreadful things that we blow ourselves to pieces, I don't think I can cope with. If there is some global catastrophe, then everything I'm writing becomes meaningless. Uh, and I don't think there's any point in, in going there. Mm. I suppose if you're an economist, the biggest fear is that the US and China mismanage their relationship. The world's largest economy passing the baton of size in terms of economics to the world's second largest sometime in the 2030s and with a difficult relationship between the two, neither respecting the other as they should. And I should say, by the mm. way, I think China becoming richer and its people becoming better educated and better fed and is good. I mean, it's wonderful. But I think that that transition will be very difficult and it could go wrong. And that would certainly be pretty close to the top of my, of my fears.
And whilst we're on China, I wonder what you would say with regard to the debate that you mentioned right at the beginning that was a huge one in the 90s, which is the extent to which China would politically liberalise the more it was integrated into the global economy. And that was, of course, the the, the big Mm. hope of of, of Clinton and and, and Blair and Western leaders in the late 1990s or so. And in the very early years of the millennium, it looked Mm. as if it might happen certainly doesn't look like it's heading in that direction under Xi Jinping at the moment. But there is still, nonetheless, a kind of a coherent logic which says, well, if you have however many hundreds of millions of middle-class people who are, as you say, better educated, at some point or other, getting off the growth treadmill for China is going to be extremely challenging. And that might be the moment at which the Chinese Communist Party is under particular threat and... The Chinese middle class look for the kind of political rights Mm. that the Western middle class do. In other words, that there will be a political liberalisation in China. It's just lagging a lot. Do you think that's fantasy? I don't think it's fantasy at all. And I think you've put it extremely well. I had rather expected that to happen. And I was wrong. I think now two things will change. One is, as you've said, Chinese people become richer and better educated and The second is that as the population starts to fall, China will stop wanting to look so aggressively outside and and want to look, look after its older population. And the Chinese government, the Communist Party, will either recognize that and make those reforms to give the, the greatest global middle class what they want, and that will therefore be reform within the party system. Or there will be some kind of discontinuity and it will take place outside the party system. And if you say, McRae, give me a date for that, middle 2030s, let's settle on 2035. Well, I've already booked you to come back in 2050 <laughs> so that we can have a discussion that about how well we're doing. That alas will not happen. <laughs> <laughs> but let me end by asking you a generic question. You've already talked about how actually the process of thinking through the future is the most beneficial aspect of all this. It's not a question of pinpointing a, a point in the map and saying that's where we're going to be, but studying the various different journeys we could take. What do you think we should learn from this process of forecasting to help us navigate the immediate future? We're on a journey. We all make implicit decisions about how we think the future will unfold. We make those decisions when we choose what to study at university. We make those decisions as to where we choose to make our careers. Do we, I don't know, do postgraduate work if we're a university grad in America? Or do we go and go to Europe? Do we, say in the UK, do we decide to become a banker or an entrepreneur, whatever it is. We all make those decisions implicitly, or rather we have an implicit view of how the world will turn out in making those decisions. And what I want to help people to do is to clarify their minds so that they can make those decisions implicitly. And if it changes, then it changes. They change their plan. Much better to have a plan and change it than not to have a plan at all. 
The book is called The World in 2050. Hamish McRae, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to the final episode in the fourth series of Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. I want to express my thanks to all my guests this series. Naomi Oreskes, Cecile Fab, Robin Dunbar, Helen Thompson, Michael Gordon, Nina Power, John Cottingham and Hamish McRae. I want to give particular thanks to my brilliant producer Phil Bodger and to Nina Humphreys for her wonderful theme music. And to the team at Theos, Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. And I want to thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the series and I hope it's encouraged you to go out and buy and read some of the books we've been talking about. We'll be back for another series later on in the year, but until then, take care.